0: Welcome back to Future Prairie Radio, where marginalized artists explore the future through the lens of the arts, humanities, and culture. I'm your host, Joni Whitworth. This is Season 5, Episode 12, For Artists to Thrive, with Mike Crenshaw. Mike is a rapper and a poet who has toured the world making music and creating social change. His last project, Earthbound, explores modern social conditions through the lens of climate responsibility, economic violence, and politics. I love the way Mike explores art as a tool for addressing our twin justice and ecological crises. When I spoke to Mike, he had recently received $5,000 as an artist grant to curate, produce, and perform in some live music shows down at the historic Alberta Abbey, which is here in Northeast Portland, Oregon, where we live. Uh, For that project, he's been working with Rejoice Diaspora and Bernard Teta, who's also known as Space King, and a musician who was a guest on this podcast a couple years ago, Johnny Cool Stargazer. They're all very talented and it's such a treat to have them working together and performing live music in our city again. Mike's goal with all of this was to bring together hip hop and world beat, Afrobeat, rock, R&B, jazz, and reggae and experimental music all in one site alongside West African dancers so they could talk about issues around race and class and culture. Mike is incredibly prolific. I'm gonna link some more about his bio in the show notes, but I think that's enough to get you started and I hope you love his incredibly thoughtful remarks and gorgeous approach to not only art making, but true long-term community building. If you want to look him up later, you can see more of his work at mikecrenshaw.com or go to his Spotify page. Please enjoy Mike Crenshaw.
1: My name is Michael Crenshaw, and I am a black man. I grew up referring to myself as black in terms of my cultural, ethnic, and, and racial identity. In, in my lifetime, people would start to say African American, but because I was in the era of identifying as black, I still do. African American actually feels clunky to me. So yeah, I'm a black man living in Portland. I've been out here about 30 years, since 92. And I'm a professional artist, educator, and I'm a social justice activist. So, you know, I'm, I'm an MC primarily and I'm a spoken word artist. So my poetry can either be delivered as spoken word or as rap lyrics. I've been emceeing for most of my life. I started as a kid. It was just a hobby. I could freestyle and entertain my friends and um, come up with funny rhymes. And then later I got as a teen into social justice activism because of a need to respond to the white power groups that were organizing in the city I lived in. By the time I decided to make a career as an artist, I think the political consciousness that had informed my activism started expressing itself in my lyrics. A lot of the the lyricism I do as an artist is reflective of the political consciousness and development that's been part of my path. You know, when I was, when I was a boy, my first medium was just sketching and drawing. And I want to find my way back to doing visual art. It's funny how you kind of get buried in just the patterns of survival, you know, as a working class person. And then some of the things you love, you like lose touch with them. I mean, I'm I'm a writer and I'm, I'm making a transition. Um, I'm not leaving behind being an MC and a lyricist and a songwriter, but I'm um, developing my literary writing practice in non-fiction first and um, everything I've read about how to be a writer talks about writing every day like having a daily practice but months go by before I, I start writing again that's been the hardest part for me and I think it's like it's not rocket science but I think what I'm learning is the hardest part about being a writer is to actually consistently write yeah and it almost I mean I think right now we're in a time because of all the crises that are converging and moments of self-reflection that people have had since the beginning of the pandemic, right, in the context of late-stage capitalism, where it's apparent that the systemic things that are part of our culture and society aren't healthy. And so people are asking these questions about how we spend our time and how much privilege impacts the way we get to show up in the world. And so I'm looking at social obligations a lot and the contradiction or the tension between my creative practice and the time that I get to devote to that yeah. versus like family, social obligations related to work and community. You know I have a partner and I have familial obligations to my extended family sometimes. I feel like in order to be successfully writing every day I kinda have to be less connected. If I'm not privileged financially to where I don't have to work then I have to figure out a way to not be has tied into the relationships that I have. Less time for relationships, more time for me. A buzzword that I've been hearing a lot lately is narcissism. On one end of the spectrum, people are talking about narcissism, and maybe it's just making its way into my awareness as I become more reflective of like what it takes to be successfully artistic. You have to be self-centered in order to protect your practice, right? I don't know, I just have a lot of questions as I examine all this stuff. I've been in and out of the Abbey up there on Alberta and Mallory, Oates oh, Church, historically black church, in a historically black neighborhood of northeast Portland. I've been in and out of there over the past few decades. Part of cultural events, like my comrade Imani Muhammad would host the youth summit there, and so we would do stuff across the street in the parking lot. I recently got to perform there, and they recently opened as a venue in the community, and, they reached out to me asking me if I was interested in potentially doing a residency there. So I already had an idea when I saw that grant of like, this, this is something that I could develop at the space, at the Alberta Abbey space. Mm-hmm. So I pitched the idea to them and they were like, sure. And they wrote me a letter of support. Part of what they're trying to do there is to curate intentionally and make space for black art and cultural expression and music. I pitched the idea that I would apply for this grant, and if we got it, then we would use that to fund the residency. So I'm doing a three-month residency there. We were gonna start in May, but I've got some travel coming up, so we'll start in July. And the artists that I picked to do it with me are Johnny Cool, AKA Johnny Cool Stargazer, and my comrade, Bernard Teta, or Face King. Face King is a Ghanaian, drummer and dancer, as well as an MC. So I met Face King through working with the Obo Addy Legacy Project, and we co-produced an event called Diatribe, which was combined theater and dance and hip-hop and, and live music. And the intention was to take these traditional movement and rhythm traditions from Ghana, West Africa, mm-hmm. that Obo Addy grew up with. He was reared to be a master drummer, a master percussionist, and a dancer. and so. He migrated to the u.s and and settled in portland oregon and in his the decades that he lived here he trained all these young ghanaian artists in their cultural tradition of movement and rhythm and so what he saw was the parallel and the intersection between hip-hop culture and west african traditions of movement and rhythm and so we created a show together with my other comrade alan one um aj one and it was called diatribe so that's how i met Face King, he was part of that production, he was one of the dancers and percussionists under Oboe Addy. Addy has since passed, Rest in Power, you know, and it's really important to carry on the relationship that was formulated when he invited me to become part of that production, Diatribe. And so I was happy to invite Face King to be part of the curation. So each installment of this residency, there will be three Um, July, August, and September, it'll be Face King, Johnny Cool, and me. Johnny Cool is a singer-songwriter, MC, producer, an extraordinary producer, musical producer, in terms of creating songs from their inception to these compositions with multiple instruments, not just in the hip-hop genre, but also in jazz and funk and rock and soul. I worked with his older brother, who's another veteran hip-hop artist and MC, from Portland. There was a group called Gism. So Ray Ray and I in the 90s were doing shows together. Many years later I met Johnny Cool at k because I was managing k as the co-manager and he was in there using the studios for production. And so at that time I didn't even know he, him and Ray Ray were siblings. I would put my ear on some of the stuff he was doing and we got to talk and he was like yeah I would love to work with you sometime. I was like yeah I'd love to hear what you're up to and so that was the beginning of our collaboration, I interviewed him for a radio show I was producing and got to hear some of his music, and then we wound up having a lot of people in common. Yeah, he's produced uh, some songs out that I've released on my albums. Oh My God is, is a good one, we got a video for that one. And then I'm working on an album that's produced by him so you know i've been an MC expressing for the most part politically conscious lyricism as a reflection of what it means to be black in america and on earth not just in this current moment but as a product of history you know our lives are inextricably connected to things that have happened in terms of what our ancestors have survived and produced and then what what's to come so looking ahead at You know, what does the future hold for humankind? And what is my contribution? What is my role? What is my purpose in my art? Kind of is a place where I examine that and trying to do that in a way that is as deep as it sounds, but also inviting to the audience. And I want to engage an audience and fans through the music. So I want my music to be accessible. And I think that's where hip hop is A powerful genre and format because it has the rhythmic base of the music and the call and response and the repetition is something that can really engage a listener you know I'm I'm taking a lot of like heavy and expansive consciousness but channeling it through a medium that's I think very accessible you know like I said I'm starting to explore writing nonfiction and working on various projects from podcasts to documentaries to a screenplay that look at like being a black individual descendant of Africans and the convergence of capitalism and white supremacy colonialism and how those things create the foundation for the ecological crisis that all life has to face in this time on earth and being aware of that has kind of driven not just my purpose but my my growth and development and so th- those are the themes in all of the art that I do. One of my biggest achievements has been to be part of developing that project called the African Hip Hop Caravan. The term cultural activism stems from the relationships that I had as part of developing that project. I've been an activist since I was a teenager and the relationships through doing social justice activism, got me invited to go to Africa, Rwanda, specifically in 2004. So the first time I went to Africa, I went in this very intense kind of way where I went to this conference, on um, genocide, reconciliation, youth empowerment, HIV, AIDS, and economic justice. And the conditions of participating in this conference in Rwanda were that one of the outcomes was two years of follow-up work related to the outcomes of the conference. And so going into this, I didn't know what the follow-up work would be. But while I was there, I met some really amazing African activists from Burundi, Rwanda, Kenya, Uganda, Democratic Republic of Congo, Zimbabwe, South Africa. We met people and worked closely with people who lost their whole families to the genocide. Um, Young people who were living and surviving with HIV AIDS without the type of infrastructure and support that we would find in the West. We learned a lot about structural adjustment and economic exploitation that happens in Rwanda and other underdeveloped African countries where the World Bank and the IMF are putting conditions on the debt that these countries owe so that, you know, basically every child born on the continent inherits a lifetime of debt that they'll never be able to earn their way out of. And these are part of these structural programs that are developed by European financial institutions that are basically economic colonialism. I met young people there who had been orphaned by the genocide and who were trying to become computer literate because they saw that computer literacy was one of the only ways to be able to compete. Some of the people who worked in these communities were the people at the conference, and they invited me to participate and support their efforts to create computer centers so that young people in the region could be computer literate. That became my Follow up work. So I came back to the States and recruited my business partner and manager at the time, my good friend and comrade Morgan Delaney, and we started an organization called Global Fam. We got Education Without Borders, a nonprofit, to be our fiscal sponsor, and then we got Free Geek to donate seven desktop computers. We set out to fundraise to ship the computers to Burundi. And we did. And so they were able to build their first computer center. Now they've got three and we just got $110,000 to fund them for three more years. And so now they've got three sites and they've put up solar panels and they're building roads and wells in their communities. These projects weren't designed by Westerners who impose their NGO projects on people. These are developed by Africans in the community who identified this is what we need And since you're in the West and you have access to resources, this is how you can help us. That work got me invited to go play a music festival eight years later in 2012 in Zimbabwe. So I went and played the show called Music Fest in 2012 in Harare. And as I was taking it all in, I overheard a conversation. And there was these two people, a Zimbabwean brother and a German woman, Katja and Biko. And they were talking about this. African Hip Hop Caravan project, where they would tour from one end of the continent to the other and spend a Ooh. week in each city, hosted by these African Hip Hop collectives. So I was emboldened, and I said, excuse me, can I ask you guys what you're talking about? And they were like, we're talking about the African Hip Hop Caravan. And they referred to me as Comrade Mike because it turns out they knew who I was. They knew Riggs Bamba, who invited me to the festival. And so they said, Look, you know, you can be part of this, you can help us organize it, but you have to do these things. And so Here we are again, it's my second time in Africa, in a different country eight years later, and some of my comrades are telling me, this is what we need you to do. Get a letter of support from Umiya Abu-Jamal. There were numerous people they wanted me to contact to support the caravan, so I came back and I did that. And then in 2013, I went on the first African hip-hop caravan. And we went to Johannesburg and Cape Town and Harare, Zimbabwe, and then I did it again in 2014. We added Nairobi, Kenya in Arusha, Tanzania. And then Arusha became one of my favorite places. So I went back in 2015 and then it it occurred to me I wanted to open this opportunity up for young people. So I've taken three folks from the States on the caravan. I'm about to go back. I've been invited to play the Hip Hop Asili Festival in Dar es Salaam in June in Tanzania. So I'll leave on June 8th. I just purchased my tickets yesterday. It's a gift that's gonna continue to feed me for the rest of my life and hopefully I'll be able to pass on some of these things to some of the younger folks I work with. I hope that my daughter can, you know, if she chooses, will one day live one of the communities that we're connected to because of the work we do. And, you know, get a chance to live overseas in Africa. And I hope to one day relocate. Right now, Tanzania is looking good, but, you know, it's complex. So those doors will open when the time is right. It's the kind of stuff you can't really force it. Like, it takes time to understand the complexity of the relationships that have to be in place to relocate and then I have to make enough money to start a life somewhere else you can't just show up and be a drain on the economy where you're taking resources that should be local forget it in the streets I and insecure and immature nervous. some of us try to organize we're, we're gonna, gonna die a certain we make them rich and overfist the products that we purchase the food we eat the thoughts we think the shit we drink it hurts us all our lives we pay the price I'm going against the current the systems weak, they face defeat but that's beneath the surface eye for eye two for tooth the whole was blind and toothless I want justice and I think there should be retribution the police are a lynch mob public executions they operate above the law brutal and abusive Someone reform? what do we want we want revolution freedom and democracy See you suffer that illusion There will be blood, there will be death There will be less confusion Now there's violence daily And apparently we're losing Right is the language of the thunder in the flames and the thunder As a teenager in Minneapolis, I was part of a group We started a skinhead crew We were just a bunch of friends in the hardcore punk scene And we discovered this subculture That we wanted to identify with And right around the time We started getting real comfortable and excited about our look and the music and the style and the camaraderie we were developing. This existential threat appears in the form of these white supremacists gangs. There was one called the White Knights being organized by this Nazi skinhead who was a member of the Ku Klux Klan. And so they started running the streets in our neighborhoods. So we confronted them and that was the beginning of my politicization. Thinking back now in a broader sense, like being born black in the United States is a political undertaking, whether you're conscious of it or not, just because of the history of how our bodies have been used in relation to extraction, exploitation, and the oppression that stems from that. However, being explicitly politically active started for me as the confrontation began between my group and the neo-Nazi skinheads known as the White Knights. And so we confronted them and became engaged in a violent conflict. For about four or five years, that was central to my existence, and we had to organize locally, regionally, and ultimately nationally to protect ourselves. It was a form of community defense, because while we had one local group, due to an explosion of media coverage of the white power, skinheads, and neo-Nazis, kids started copying that and emulating it all across the United States and so we found that there were white power skinhead problems and neo-nazi problems not just in our city but in other cities so first we organized with other youth crews and activists in Minneapolis and then we started organizing with St. Paul and then with Chicago, Indianapolis, Madison, Wisconsin, Milwaukee. Lawrence, Kansas. Yeah, so we had a huge meeting um, in 88, I think it was, 87 or 88, and that was the foundation of the syndicate, which was Anti-Racist Skinhead Crews, and then the syndicate became the formation that created Anti-Racist Action ARA, which became national. It's always been a part of who I am, but I didn't talk about it for a lot of years. It was very insular, only people who were involved knew it and understood it, and so in recent years, because of what was happening in the Trump era with this explosion in fascism and the alt-right and white nationalism, people were taking interest. They were like, well, what did you guys do? How did you guys respond to this in your era? There were two parallel things that were happening for me. One was I was offered a book deal to tell my story as a black skinhead by PM Press because I was doing a book tour for a political prisoner by the name of David Gilbert, who was actually just, his sentence was just community. David Gilbert was white. He was one of the white supporters of the Black Liberation Army. And so he went to jail for a bank robbery because they were robbing banks to fund community projects of which Matulu Shakur was part of. Who's wow. still in prison and that's tupac shakur's godfather right so i got to go on a book tour on his behalf because he wrote this book called love and struggle while he was in prison and at that time we didn't think he would ever get out so i started working on this book black skinhead it occurred to me a few years back that i needed to go and because i was having trouble writing i said let me go interview the guys that i grew up with and pm press was like yeah your story is one thing but we want to hear some of the stories of these other black skinheads so while i was doing that i was working at KBU and one of my staff members my comrade Aaron yankee was like hey you know that book you're writing what do you think about taking some of that content and developing a podcast about the history of anti-racist and anti-fascist organizing that you've been part of i was like sure let's do it so we developed this podcast called it did happen here and we just won an oregon heritage award for excellence for that like people love that podcast we interviewed over 40 people and we tied the story of what we were doing in minneapolis to what was happening in portland because there was a strong connection between the two communities of anti fascists and anti racists especially in the anti-racist skinhead scene. We supported a lot of what was happening here in Portland back in the 90s and fighting the Nazis. And um, those relationships are still strong. So the book and the podcast are parallel. While these things are developing, the podcast is already done. It's continuing to make waves. The book is, I'm still working on it. Twin Cities Public Broadcasting decided that they wanted to do a documentary on The Baldies. So we had a 35 year reunion and that documentary is out now and it's circulating. It's called The Baldies and people love it. Like I get every day people DM me like, oh, I just watched the documentary. Oh, my God. It's not about the response. I mean, that stuff feels so good. But what it is for me is that when we were kids, we were just doing what we thought was right. And we loved each other. And that's what allowed us to be a fighting force because we were sticking up for each other's lives. If we look out the window and if we look within, it's intimate, like this isn't some distant shit. Like the convergence of all these crises that are the shadow side of the American project, which is based on exploitation and genocide and slavery and the denial of that, like that's coming around to where there's no denying what the consequences of generations of centuries, you know, of decades of that process has created and you see the houselessness, the mental health, the addiction, the poverty, the gutting of social service programs, the person-to-person violence. This is what you get when you fuck people over for profit for hundreds of years. And art is a way for we as human beings to process that that isn't destructive. And so art is a matter of mental health. It is a matter of uh, spiritual wellness to be engaged in creative process that allows us to not only reflect, but like to heal. And it's not something that is traditionally a place for people to get wealthy, right? There are a few artists who become wealthy, but by and large, most working people are not gonna have an opportunity to become famous and get rich from selling their art. But if we can fund art in a way that they're are people who can live. We transmute a lot of toxicity and pain through our creative process. And so art is, I think it's something that we need to center more. Regional Arts and Culture Council can be part, has been part, and can continue to be part of making sure that there's resources and that there's funding for artists to thrive.
0: Thanks so much for listening. This episode was sponsored by Oregon Humanities and the Oregon Community Foundation. Written and produced by me, Joni Whitworth, and edited by Ellie Swope. If you have any questions or feedback about the show, we're happy to hear it. Please feel free to reach out at any time at futureprairie.com or on social media at futureprairie.